Welcome back to our second segment of this afternoon's program. It's Sunday, the 12th of September, 2021. It is now 1.43 in the studio. I'm your host, Kieran Murdoch. Uh, in this segment, we are discussing mental health and suicide prevention. Uh, in Antigua and Barbuda, sadly, two adults recently ended their lives. Uh, one woman, 33-year-old Alana Michael, and one young man, 25-year-old Darian Patterson. Uh, suicide remains one of the leading causes of death in the world, according to the World Health Organization, accounting for one in every 100 deaths. Uh, each year, more people die from suicide than from HIV, malaria, or breast cancer. Uh, suicide is also the fourth leading cause of death worldwide among young people between the ages of 15 and 29. Now, there are a variety of factors that might increase the risk of someone having suicidal thoughts or attempting to end their life. Uh, and what we plan to focus on today is mental health. Uh, we'll be talking about depression as well as mental illness uh, and their relation to suicide. Uh, and on this segment, we'll be asking why depression and mental unwellness generally is so difficult for those afflicted and even their families and friends to treat successfully. Uh, joining our panel for this discussion, we're happy to have with us Ms. Therese Millet. Uh, she is a counseling psychologist, uh, originally from the island of Antigua. Uh, she has been working in the field for the past 16 years. Over the span of her career, her duties have included professional and curriculum development, human resource management, advocacy work, lectures, workshops, seminars, and therapeutic services. Uh, she is currently a practicing psychotherapist in central New York and a doctoral student pursuing a PhD in human development and family science at Syracuse University. Uh, good afternoon to you, Ms. Therese Millet. How are you doing? Good afternoon, Kieran. I'm Therese Millet-Joseph. If you want to leave one off, you can leave off Millet. And I am doing great. Thank you. <laughs> Understood. My apologies. Uh, we are also joined by Miss Fiona Charles-Richards. Uh, she is the Acting Director of the Family and Social Services Division here in Antigua and Barbuda. Uh, in that role, she coordinates the work of a number of social services, including, for example, the Child Protection Unit, the Probation Unit, uh, and the, the Boys Training School, among others. Uh, she received her Master's in Clinical Psychology from the University of the West Indies, Mona. Uh, good afternoon to you, Miss Fiona Charles-Richards, and thank you for joining us this afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for having me. Uh, and finally, we are joined by Ms. Naima Hazel. Uh, she is Deputy Director of the National Counseling Center in St. Kitts and Nevis. Uh, Ms. Hazel has studied sociology and psychology, uh, specializing in gender and race, and obtained both her master's in counseling, oh, sorry, obtained her master's in counseling psychology uh, from the University of the West Indies. Uh, she has over 20 years of experience working with uh, youth communities in St. Kitts and Nevis in the areas of health and family life education, guidance and counseling, juvenile justice, and NGO development. Uh, good afternoon to you, Ms. Naima Hazel. How are you doing? I am very good. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Mr. Ismila Joseph, in a, in a psychological sense, uh, when we talk about suicide prevention and we, we, we relate that to the issue of mental health, um, what specifically are we speaking about? Are we referring to depression? Are we referring to a range of, of, of mental unwellness and, 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 and uh, psychiatric issues? Uh, just give me some sense when we try to relate the issue of uh, suicidal thoughts or actions to the issue of mental health, uh, what we are really talking about. Okay. Good afternoon once again. Um, so one of the reasons that suicide is, um, is, is directly linked to mental health is because many persons who have attempted suicide and also those who have um, 
been successful uh, at suicide are persons who have dealt with or are currently dealing with mental health issues. It is one of the top risk factors uh, for suicidal behavior. So depression, other mental health disorders or substance use that can lead to mental health disorders is a, is a top risk factor. It is usually the first, the first risk factor that we list whenever we are asked about um, um, what could possibly lead to suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Um, this is not the case for every person who has suicidal ideations, um, although that in itself can be viewed as a mental health concern, um, but not everyone who has suicidal ideation necessarily has a past where they have dealt with mental health disorders and the like, but it is certainly a top risk, risk factor that we consider and um, certainly makes you more vulnerable to suicidal ideation. Uh, and coming to you, Ms. Fiona Charles-Richards, um, I know often when we, we these unfortunate events occur and when we do discuss uh, issues relating to uh, suicidal thoughts and actions and mental health, uh, we, we focus a lot on young people. Um, is it that we, we, we see um, a greater risk in young people of, uh, of experiencing those sorts of illnesses and, and developing those sorts of behaviors and taking that approach? We tend to focus on our younger population because they do face a lot of challenges. Not only that, but they're also still developing in terms of being able to manage emotions. And so as a result of that, yes, our focus will be that, you know, that population. And it's actually, suicide is actually one of the highest in the younger population that it, than it is the older population. Not that it does not happen in the older population, but we tend to see um, a lot of self-harm behaviors in our younger population and of course issues of suicidal ideation. So it is a challenge for them because not only are they trying to identify who they are, but they're also dealing with different impulses, different emotions that they're seeking to manage. And of course, uh, what their support system, depending on what their support system looks like, that will determine how they're able to manage those emotions. Mm. Uh, and Ms. Naima Hazel, I wonder if you could um, give me any insight uh, into when persons experience uh, this sort of depression or, or these sorts of uh, feelings, uh, why it can sometimes be difficult for them to seek help directly or even for their family and friends to, to really uh, uh, address it. Um, I, I don't know. It's a good question, but it's, it's, it's multi-layered. It's not necessarily that they're not trying to seek help. Sometimes you, they are seeking help. People just are not aware of the signs, you know. Uh, so sometimes we see things in young people that we assume are suicide, like, say, cutting. Cutting happens a lot with our young people where there's pain. They're feeling a lot of pain inside. It's a way to express pain. And people think, oh, it's suicide because of the nature of cutting. But really, it's a cry for help. So sometimes people will even express that they do feel depressed or they do feel sad, but we don't really have a good understanding of what that means if we haven't experienced it ourselves. So a lot of it really leads to listening. You know, um, uh, there's no, you know, often when people die uh, by suicide, we have a lot of blame. Well, how did I not know? Who didn't know? Uh, how, how could we not tell? 
like if the person wanted you to know, you would know. But often people are not, there's a, a myth that people commit suicide and threats of suicide are for attention seeking. So your question actually addresses that because it's not that they want your attention unless it's a thing like cutting, but that they they really feel feelings of worthlessness, like life would be better without them. So there are certain things that we can look for, like a person who's wanting to die tells you a lot of times they want to die or they want to kill themselves or uh, as uh, my colleague said earlier, making a plan to complete the suicide or seeking ways or talking about feeling helpless or hopeless or feeling trapped like I just don't know what to do next or um, people who experience chronic pain or illness, people who have just experienced loss, like in relationships, if you see you have a friend and they've um, they, they seem to be taking a breakup particularly hard, you know. Uh, sometimes people think suicide is something people plan and think out, but often it, acts, it happens very impulsively in moments of crisis. So we just have to be aware of our loved ones and, um, and behaviors that seem out of the ordinary, risk-taking behaviors, life affair planning, like suddenly they're putting all their things in order, giving their things away. Um, they're visiting their grandma they haven't seen in a long time. Uh, they're they're putting calls out. They're putting messages online. Oh, I just don't know if I want to be on this earth anymore. So there are things um, that people do as signs, but we have to be aware of them and not um, as as um, uncomfortable as this for me to say, laugh about them, because a lot of the times in our society when we're uncomfortable with topics we laugh about them so it's just to take people's depression and anxiety and fear and um and their outreach seriously uh to see that people when they say they're depressed it's a serious thing and also not to think that it's something just happens to certain kinds of people because we all experience depression at some point and really suicide um suicidal ideation is something that could really happen to anybody uh, and coming back to you, Mr. Is Miller Joseph. Um, let us say uh, I have a friend, uh, and that friend, um, uh, well, I recognize that that person is displaying some of the signs that we have spoken about. What should I do? How should I respond? Okay, so there are some action steps that we typically recommend that persons use, and this is not just for your friend, but it could be a family member. This can be used in any instance where you suspect that someone is entertaining suicidal ideations or if they have already expressed them to you. And it's a five-step uh, process that we recommend. The first step is to ask the person outright, like fearlessly, come right out and ask them if they haven't already said so, are you thinking about killing yourself? Um, the second step would be to then do whatever is within your power to keep them safe. And so you want to reduce the risk um, of the person actually being able to carry out the plan. And you can do that by reducing their access to any lethal items or places that they might want, that they might um, be able to, uh, to to carry out the act. Um, basically, reducing the person's access to any means that would make it possible to have a successful 
suicide. And I know that this is easier said than than done. You know, this isn't always easy to do, asking the person if they have a plan, etc. But as much as is within your power, you want to be able to remove things that can assist with the plan and disable that plan as much as you are able to. Step three is to be there. Be there for the person. Listen carefully to the person if they want to talk, if they need to ventilate, whatever it is they're going through. You want to be able to learn what the individual is thinking and feeling. And you also want to um, to, to be in a position to kind of reduce whatever negative thoughts that they are having. Step four would be to connect them to, to people who are in a better position than you are to help. So considering that you may not uh, have all of the, the skills and the tools that would be required to reduce suicidal ideations or to help a person combat, you know, whatever cognitive distortions and negative thoughts they're having, you want to be able to connect them to someone who can. And so you should, um, you know, connect them to perhaps a national suicide uh, hotline or a crisis line if there is one. Contact a therapist, contact your primary care physician if, if that's the only person you can think of. The bottom line is get help connect them to someone who can offer them more assistance than you can. And the final step, step five, is to stay connected to the person. So you want to follow up after you have connected them. You don't want to just drop off the scene and, and just kind of leave them to fend for themselves after you would have connected them to someone else. So follow up, stay in touch even after the crisis appears to have passed because persons who have previously attempted suicide or persons who have previously entertained suicidal ideations are always at risk of doing it again. That is a risk factor. And so you don't want to just leave them swinging in the wind once you follow the steps. You want to try to stay connected to that person and follow up with them and make sure make sure that um, that they are still doing okay and that they continue to follow whatever guidelines they have been given to remain in a healthy uh, space mentally. Uh, Miss Fiona Charles Richards, um, I, I've, I've heard it said that uh, at times uh, persons who are experiencing psychiatric issues, mental health and wellness, um, especially things that are uh, 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 diagnosable, you know. Uh, uh, but, but anyway, since I don't know the appropriate terminology, let me not let me not stray. Um, but that at times persons can be fearful of being institutionalized. They fear that they, uh, if they see a professional or if they allow someone to help them by taking them to see a professional, uh, they fear that uh, it may be a situation where it's determined they must be uh, 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 taken to a, a, a mental health, uh, a wellness. Uh, uh, institution and treated there, and it's something that they are, are un, unwilling to, to take part in. Um, what are your thoughts on that, that sort of phobia of, of engaging in terms of being uh, at a mental uh, health uh, wellness institution? 
it means that we have really failed in terms of educating our people in terms of what it means or why one would need to go into a mental health um, institutional wellness center as you would have put it but there are different levels of mental health issues it could be depression or it could be severe schizophrenia now these are two basically extremes of both ends of the pole uh in if you want to put it that way because for example a person who may be major depressive disorder is not a person who has is not the same as having depressive symptoms at a particular time there so the, the different aspects to mental health and so i don't want to complicate it what i want to say then is this there's no guarantee of a person going into a mental health facility depending on what time or how intervention is done for example if for example a person is extremely disoriented or or may not be able to uh, know what date time or place or having extreme abnormal behavior etc yes that person is going to need to have some support in terms of how we intervene in stabilizing and ensuring they get the best care that they don't harm themselves or someone else right now a person who may have depression who may have had symptoms of depression for some time may need to start that intervention and just having a conversation now there are different things that can create depression especially in women as because there are so many hormonal issues that can also trigger depression so so there's no one set way of giving a, 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 any kind of you know and saying oh once you have a mental health issue you're going to end up in an institution no because mental health isn't one paintbrush across the the canvas everybody is dealing with something different at different levels that requires different levels of intervention and so depending on where a person is it will determine the type of level of intervention and no majority of the persons do not need to be institutionalized uh, and Ms. Naima Hazel, uh, in your experience, um, for, for, for many persons who are uh, attempting to uh, assist their relatives, their family members, their friends, um, in your experience, is there, is there that availability of, because, because uh, many people just don't have the, 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 the income in terms of you know, being able to, to, uh, to, to, to pay for professional services themselves, they, they may just not be able to do it. Um, in your experience, is there the availability of, of publicly funded um, uh, mental health care, uh, counseling, uh, uh, psychiatric care that persons can access when they have no other choice? Uh, well, it's not a no other choice. I love that, that idea. I actually work in a, a public health <laughs> institution where we do offer counseling for free um, or a nominal fee. So uh, it should be available um, in every country. But of course, that requires you to invest in something that doesn't make money, right? And we know that governments don't generally invest in things that don't produce anything, but it does. It produces a well, um, uh, a community of people with good mental wellness. But something that you said about families and not being able to support them to pay, a lot of the times people go to their families, but people can't help, not because they can't afford or they don't want to, but because they too have their own levels of trauma, 
you know. Some of them themselves, especially right now while we're dealing with a lot of COVID-19 related anxiety, that a lot of people have their own trauma and their own drama that's kind of to the surface. So other people who come to them with problems, they they are, they don't have the capacity. So I actually really liked what my colleague said earlier about connecting them to people who can help. Be honest with yourself to know that you cannot help. But every country institutionally should have at least a national counseling service or counseling unit, uh, particularly attached to your probation and child protection services, your social services, your community health services, because these are things that actually work together. And often in our systems, we look at them like they're disjointed, but they're not disjointed. Mental health is actually in everything. So we have not just family members who send people to counseling or encourage or refer people to counseling. We get counseling, of course, from institutions. We have referrals from the court. Like if you don't have free counseling, where are your court referrals going? We have referral from child protection services, referral from our children's homes, a referral from our uh, juvenile facilities, a referral from our churches, referral from our companies, our businesses. We have businesses who send people home and then send them to us to be like, here, can you help them with their depression and anxiety? You know, so there is a lot of need for the entire society to look at mental wellness as a community issue that we need to be addressing it and not like this person's crazy or that one looks like she's struggling with depression or look I heard Susie had a breakdown that's not what it is we have to start to normalize mental health so that we can put the resources together like I heard you speaking earlier um, about the resources the shortage of resources for COVID-19 response in in the frontline workers psychologists and counselors are also frontline workers but we are not being uh, replenished in the same way so if you have four or you have two or you have just a few counts clients then you're telling people come for counseling but then there's nobody there to counsel them so we really as governments and and as citizens because we put pressure on governments to make action really have to start speaking to them about how important it is to have mental health services available for everybody and for those who can't afford it that there is some kind of option for them because it's very very important and if i could just jump back to miss fiona charles richards just very quickly uh miss miss, miss charles richards i just wanted to ask you in antigua and barbuda if, if if you're aware of uh, specifically uh, for instance, like, as I said, if, if, you, if you take uh, somebody in, in the example that I gave, let's say I have a friend, uh, I've noticed certain behaviors in them, and I'd like to get them uh, some assistance, um, uh, who, who would I reach out to in terms of what is available publicly and, and what is publicly funded? Okay, so Family and Social Services NOM offers counseling. Uh, we normally reach at the number 562-5668. And so, or in some instances, persons may even call out our TRICARE Protection Hotline, which is 464-3824, and um, make a call to the number in terms of getting some assistance. And in terms of um, your, uh, uh, or what you're aware of in terms of the, the availability of trained professionals, is that something... Uh, I, I, well, I suppose the question I'm really trying to ask is, um, are you well-staffed, understaffed in terms of trained professionals who can address the volume uh, of maybe requests that may come? Or are your services underutilized? The, the services are definitely not underutilized um, at Family and Social Services. It is highly utilized by the Family Court in terms of assisting some in instances there. We also support persons who are calling in terms of walk-ins, etc. 
uh, which has been really been made a bit difficult by COVID. And so I know a lot of my counselors were facilitating online um, Zoom calls with some of their clients. However, we are significantly other staff uh, and I make no bones about it, but there are all trained professionals within the department as who offers both counseling um, and those type of intervention. Uh, and coming to you, Ms. Therese Miller-Joseph, uh, there are times when, and I think we've, we've touched on it uh, quite a bit, uh, there are times when family and friends um, lack the emotional energy to fully grapple with the, the, the extent of, of somebody's unwellness or, or the issues that that person may be facing. Uh, and then at times that person m- themselves, as we have discussed, um, may seek to uh, uh, hide their intentions from someone, hide the extent of their feelings, uh, especially oftentimes if they don't want to um, uh, cause distress. Um, so it, it goes untreated. And what would seem like something that was minor and periodic, um, you then end up with... Uh, 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 an attempt at suicide or or, or something or, or an actual successful suicide um, uh, your thoughts on, on on how family members and friends should be deal with that it's something I'm particularly interested in if, if for persons who are listening uh, and they, they they can relate they have family members or friends who they have tried to assist um, and because of their own exhaustion and because of um, perhaps that person who they're trying to assist, that person being willing to put it under the rug so that they, they don't cause distress to their family member, it's something that goes untreated. Uh, your thoughts on situations like that? Okay, so firstly, I will speak to um, the the first part of your question, which was persons who are reluctant to be transparent about the way they are feeling or about the fact that they have suicidal ideations. And you are absolutely correct with that. There is a certain level of shame that sometimes is attached to it. Persons do not want to admit to weakness. Um, I would say that this is this happens with um, probably everyone who experiences suicidal ideations. But I think it is more prevalent in males than it is in females um, because there is a narrative out there that to express weakness or, um, or and perhaps I should change that word, to say that you are not 100% okay is a form of weakness, if that makes sense. And so to not admit to that weakness, persons are... are are instead remaining silent about the fact that they are struggling. Um, There is also a stigma attached to persons who have mental health struggles and mental health issues. We are currently doing a significant amount of work around that. And I know that throughout the Caribbean community, that stigma is slowly falling away and people are more sensitized to the importance of mental health and the fact that it is just as important as physical health. And so that is improving, but improving does not mean it is gone. And so the stigma that is attached to mental health, to accessing mental health care is still very much a problem and prevents many persons from expressing the fact that they are suicidal. Also, some persons just don't want to become a burden to their families or to their loved ones, which goes back to the idea of them feeling as if it is a form of weakness. Um, 
The second part of your question, which is what should family members do in the face of a situation like this? The best response I can give is that they should educate themselves. Uh, because if your family member is not speaking up, if your family member is not being transparent about how they feel or what is happening to them, you cannot guess necessarily. You're, you're, you're not psychic, so you cannot read their mind. And so what you have to fall back on is the knowledge that you have around suicide to include what are the risk factors, what do the warning signs look like, etc this is i think the only foolproof plan that a family member could have it is to ensure that they are fully sensitized around these issues they know what to look for and the final thing i would add is do not take for granted anyone's expression of a desire to not be here anymore don't overlook it don't think that they were just joking around or that they they are attention seeking as uh, miss hazel mentioned earlier take suicidal ideations seriously in the case of suicide it is better to err on the side of caution and so that that is the very best advice that i could offer uh, and coming back to you, Ms. Fiona Charles-Richards, um, I mean, we're discussing the issue of uh, suicidal ideations, but in terms more broadly of, of just uh, being open and willing to address um, one's mental wellness, not necessarily that one may have a, 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 an acute uh, a, a illness that, that can be called X or called Y, but just in terms of one's day-to-day -day moods and the ups and downs and the crises that one faces in life, um, I, I, I'm understanding from the panel that in, in, in the region, it is a, a something we attach stigma to, simply uh, uh, seeking or accessing assistance and services or, or, or really just addressing one's mental well-being. Um, how can we, uh, or how are we redressing that and how can we continue to redress that, Ms. Ms. Charles Richards? I think one of the ways where we're going to be able to address the stigma is by constantly having conversations like this. and. I really want us to move away so badly from us being a reactive society to one where we are constantly being proactive, constantly putting mechanisms in place where we support the persons within our populations who are having these types of challenges and uh, so that the conversations is not surrounding or, you know, different things that are happening at that time, but that we put in mechanisms in place so that we don't have to have those situations happening so that persons know exactly where they can get support uh, and feel supported in, in situations such as that. And so I think the way that we're going to reduce stigma is by constantly having those conversations, normalizing um, in some aspects mental health and recognizing that even a healthy person can have mental health challenges is nothing that is, is think is something that a person can live with and monitor and maintain and in some instances it may be after having a baby because persons have postpartum depression after having a baby because of those hormone imbalances which i was speaking about earlier so there are different things that you know results in person having mental health behavior and that there's just no one-step thing or one-step reason. Also, the whole idea of us having 
hereditary aspects or biological factors within our family, whereas a person in our family two generations ago may have had a mental health illness, which means that this generation may also be susceptible. And or the things that we don't talk about within the family, there are things where we say, oh, Auntie Susie had a mental um, a, a, a breakdown. That's something that we normally say, but it's really saying that something happened mentally. And so let's start having those conversations within our families as well and letting one and each other know that they can reach out to different family members when there are challenges. Uh, and Ms. Naima Hazel, um, uh, anything you want to add at this point? And I, I, I um, uh, particularly maybe on the issue of um, family members and how they, um, especially if they're, they're themselves dealing with something or, or uh, 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 not in an emotional position to, to grapple with an issue of a loved one or a friend, um, how they can address a situation or, or, or even any anecdotes or experiences that you could give to, to that effect. Oh, well, I could. Uh, I, I actually really love what uh, both my colleagues just said, and I like to use uh, um, an analogy when I'm talking to people about mental health, about a headache. Like, you wouldn't have a headache for three weeks and not go to a doctor, but you would have depression or anxiety or feel generally unwell or not want to get out of bed or not want to do the things you used to do or all these things and not think to see a psychologist or somebody to help with your mental health. And that's the level of normalization that we need to have when we feel like we're not on, that we should really go to look for our mental health. And I often, when I do awareness, which is exactly what's needed, that's why I was applauding. Um, but when I do awareness, I also like to talk to, I say, you know, I'm a therapist and I do check in. Like I go to see a therapist and I'm a therapist. Just to normalize it for people that they would understand that everybody needs help. It's not something that is special for a certain set of people. And it also doesn't reflect on you as a family. If somebody in your family has a challenge with mental health, or as attempted suicide or who has actually taken their life. It's not a reflection on you. You did not fail that person. I think it's important for us to say that because we talk a lot about suicide, but we don't talk about the people who are left behind and how we treat them as a society. We judge them. We need to find reasons, you know, so we don't know reasons. That's the one thing with suicide. You don't actually end up with answers. You end up with much more questions. You know, you don't have a reason why. And the idea is that, you know, we would know somebody has a mental health issue. So when somebody that we don't expect takes their life, it must be, oh, there has to be something else. Or oh, a man left them or, oh, that's a wrong child or uh, this thing happened to them or, you know, and, and especially when it's responsive, when men, it's generally, oh, a woman did it, you know? And the ways that we commit suicide, you know, ingesting pesticides in the Caribbean, uh, hanging, uh, firearms. So there are so many um, different factors that affect families that outside of the prevention but also when it actually is successful, which is a tragedy for the families. So I ask that we come together and we support families. We don't spread gossip. We don't judge people. We listen to them and what they're struggling with because their struggle could be the lesson that helps you with your family. That means that you don't have to lose a son or a daughter or a sister or a brother or a friend or a colleague. So I think it's important that not just that we set by example, 
that we also look after our own mental health and normalize it for our family members, our colleagues, our friends, our community. But also when tragedies do happen, that we also continue to show them support and not judgment and asking them a million questions. Oh, why did she do that? Or why did he do that? Why do you think he did it for a girl? What was going on? This is not a way to show support. So I think we just have to put a lot of love around our families and let them know that the communities understand that these things happen to families and how can we prevent it from happening to any more of our children. Miss um, Therese Miller-Joseph, on that same, on that very same issue of uh, the person's uh, family and friends left behind when someone does take their life, um, would you add anything? I don't know if there is anything that I could add to what um, to what Naima just said. I think she covered it very, very well. I particularly love the fact that she said that mental health care is is a requirement for all of us in the same way that every last one of us has to go to the doctor to take care of our physical health. We should all feel that that same level of urgency where it comes to taking care of our mental health and that include includes us people like myself the clinicians who are looking after other people i think it, it i think it is even more critical for us to be taking care of ourselves because you cannot feed people from an empty pot uh, so I just wanted to underscore that, but I don't think there's anything else I could add to what she, she said. I think she said it beautifully. And Ms. Fiona Charles-Richards, um, if you could leave us with a final word for this segment, we're just about out of time. I would love to see us really come together in terms of being that community of support, that community of support that actually holds each other's hands and guide each other to a part in and just remember that people are dealing with so many things, so many things. And as Therese and Naima would have said, we cannot judge. It is not judgment. It's not questions that is required, but really just support and really doing that in such an authentic and real way that people feel that as if they're truly supported and so that is what i would really love to see and to encourage persons to really take care of their mental health and not um do the whole um crazy thing the thing that we like to do so much in our country but really just support each other well i want to thank all three of our guests for joining us this afternoon um we were joined by uh, Ms. Therese Miller-Joseph. Um, she is a counseling psychologist originally from Antigua, and she has been working in the field for the past 16 years. Um, she uh, is currently a practicing psychotherapist in central New York and a doctoral student pursuing a PhD in human development and family science at, the Syri at Syracuse University. Um, we were joined as well by Ms. Fiona Charles-Richards. She's the acting director of the Family and Social Services Division here in Antigua and Barbuda. Um, uh, she, of course, received her master's in clinical psychology from the UE Mona. And we were finally joined from uh, St. Kitts and Nevis by Ms. Naima Hazel, uh, deputy director of the National Counseling Center in St. Kitts and Nevis. Uh, she studied sociology and psychology um, and uh, obtained her master's in counseling psychology from the University of the West Indies. Uh, thanks to all three of you for joining us this afternoon.